If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at The Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. How are you guys? Good, good. Going and running? All right. Let's open up to Romans chapter 8. We just sang that song, the, the King of My Heart song, that God is good, right? You said all that, God is good, God is good. And then the bridge there is, you'll never let me down, right? You're never going to let me down. But I want you to realize that's a statement of faith, right? That, that God is never going to let us down. That's what we're talking about today. And we're going to pray as we get into it. Lord, we ask that this morning as we gather together, you remind us of what an incredible privilege it is and how important this is. That your people gather together for your purpose, for studying your word, for praying together, for worshiping you, which you are absolutely worthy of. So we count it a privilege to be here. And we set aside all of the worries of our life, all the hardship, and remind ourselves that you are good and you're never going to let us down. We thank you for what we're going to study today, which reminds us of that very truth. So we ask that you would speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing our study through the book of Romans. And we're focusing primarily, as we're up to chapter 8 now, we're going to focus on verse 28 today. And Romans 8.28, right, as you already know, is one of the best known and most quoted verses in all of the Bible, right? Oftentimes it's so well known that you don't even need to say the verse, you just give the address when somebody's having a rough day, right? Somebody's like, man, I'm down, I'm having a tough day, and you go, Romans 8.28, brother, right? And they already know what you're talking about. But as we're going to focus on verse 28, I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open because we're going to reference verses on either side of it today for context. So if you would, look at Romans 8, 28, and we'll read it together. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those that love God and to those that are called according to his purpose. Now, the verse starts out with a statement. We know. We know something. This comes now in contrast to verse 26, which we just studied, where it says we don't know something. Look at verse 26. It says the Spirit helps our weakness because we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. Now, we talked about this last week, how we don't know the larger picture, the grander will of God, the greater plans of God. There, there's just so many things that we don't understand that God is doing, right? We approach a situation, we see it, and we really don't even understand what God is doing oftentimes in that situation. And so therefore, many times we don't know how to pray as we should. And so verse 26 is a confession of our weakness. 
It's a confession of our lack of knowledge and our lack of understanding of the bigger picture of what God's doing. And so there's a lot of things that we don't know, and there's an awful lot of things that we don't understand. We are, and we're going to talk a lot about this next week, but we are a finite people, right? We're a limited people. We are an imperfect people that are trying to understand life and a world that was created by an infinite God. We're a finite people trying to understand a world that was created by an unlimited, boundless, all-knowing God. In Romans eleven thirty three, it says this, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How unfathomable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? There's just certain things we don't understand. In fact, there's about a bazillion things that I don't know and I don't understand and I don't see exactly how they're going to work out. And so in contrast to the not knowing of verse 26, verse 28 is a proclamation of faith in what we do know. We know that God is going to cause all things to work out for good. While there's plenty of things I don't understand, there's all of these perplexities in life, and while I don't know the larger plans and will of God, what I do know and what I put my trust in is the character and the faithfulness of God. Are you guys with me? You see, we know Him to only be good, so we trust Him for good. So it's a proclamation of faith. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. How do we know that? Well, it tells us there in verse 32. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also in him, in Christ, freely give us all things. You see the point that he's making there. The cross of Jesus Christ is the greatest possible display of love and commitment and faithfulness. God the Father sacrificed his son Jesus for our rebellious souls. So if he is that good, what good thing would he ever withhold from any one of us? And so what we do then is that any time that we're struggling or we're in any situation that causes us to doubt whether God is for us, we must go back to the foot of the cross. In the moment that you and I begin to doubt that God is good or that He is loving, we go back to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for each one of us. Because when you're looking at the cross, you can only say that God is good. And that's why you and I need to be a gospel-saturated people. A people that preach the gospel to ourselves on a regular basis. When we get up in the morning, we say, man, 
I was lost. I, I was so far from God, an enemy, alienated, distant from God, completely rebellious and saturated in sin. And God looked down from heaven and he didn't want heaven without me. So he devised a plan to send his son, God the Son, Jesus Christ, to earth that he might take all of my sin, all of my guilt, and all of my shame upon himself and hang on a cross and pay the full penalty of it there. And then I can say, I may not know what the Lord is doing. I don't understand it all. I don't know what he's doing in any given situation, but I know that he loves me because I've seen what he did for me on the cross. John would say, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And so this verse, verse 28, is a verse only for believers. It's a promise given only to believers that says, those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's for believers. It's for those that have been set free. It's for those that have experienced the grace of God. It is for those that have received forgiveness for every single sin that they have committed. And when we're in that place and have experienced that, we can simply say, I don't know it all, but I know and I have experienced the goodness of God. And because I know Him to be good, I know He is working all things together for my good. You guys with me so far? Now, that brings up a big question. What is this good that God is promising here? Because many people have either misused this or misunderstood this verse to say that what God is promising here is to make everything in my life to work out just fine in this world. Everything's going to work out for my favor, and everything's going to work out just the way that I want it, right? And the reason then that those people come to God, they make it all about God making their life happier and easier. And they make this verse all about prosperity, or comfort, or health, or safety, none of which did Jesus promise to his disciples. In fact, what did Jesus promise to his disciples? Tribulation, hardship, persecution, being misunderstood. Jesus said, if anybody's going to come after me, he said, if you guys want to follow me, you want to do what I do, you want to be a part of my gang, you have to take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross, which is an implement of death, and follow me. In fact, the overall context of Romans chapter 8 including this passage in verse 28, the bigger context of it is meant to be an encouragement for believers in light of the suffering that they go through in the world, not some sort of verse to say, we're going to remove all suffering and your whole life is going to be honky-dory. It is a verse here that is meant to be an encouragement in light of suffering. That's why back in verse 17, it says that we have become children. We have become heirs. We've become heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ 
if indeed we suffer with him, that we might be glorified with him. The context is that of suffering. And then Paul goes on in the very next verse to give us an encouragement through that suffering to say, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time. He's not saying that there's not going to be sufferings. He's assuring us of sufferings, but that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so verse 28 is not about God making our life now easy. It's an encouragement in light of the inevitable sufferings of this world, right? Because hardship is a given in this world, is it not? There's going to be pain in every one of our lives. There's going to be sickness and illness that touches every one of our lives. There's going to be loss. There's going to be false accusations. There's going to be misunderstandings. And there's going to be death that touches every one of our lives. But the promise of verse 28 is that God can use all of that for an ultimate good. That's the key. An ultimate good. Now, let me show you where that comes from. The good of verse 28 is attached to the verses on both sides of it. And what those verses teach us is that God is working things out for a larger, for an ultimate, and for an eternal good. So verse 27 and 28 together. Verse 27 says that God's Spirit intercedes for us according to what? God's will. The end game of our prayers are that we would have God's will. The end of verse 28 says that we are a called people, and all of us who have been called have been called according to His purpose. So verse 27 and 28 have to do with God's will and God's greater purpose. So when we put those two verses together and we attach them to the good of verse 28, the good that God promises is his larger will and his larger purpose. Are you guys with me so far? Furthermore, when we get to verse 29, it explains that the purpose of this good that God is promising is that we would become conformed to the image of His Son. So the second thing that is attached to this good that God promises is that He is building into us Christ-like character. You guys with me on that? Furthermore, when we come to the end of verse 29, it says that this good that God promises is that, we, is that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. Many brethren. So that then makes this good that God promises about many people getting saved. Furthermore, verse 30 attaches this good that God promises to our justification and our glorification. Justification means that we've been forgiven by the sacrifice of Jesus and are now in right standing with God. Glorification is the final redemption of all things when we get to heaven. We receive glorified bodies and we have a sin nature removed. We are glorified, we are with Christ, 
in heaven. No more tears, no more sickness, no more pain. Everything is the way that it is meant to be at that time. And so the fourth thing we see is that verse 30 now attaches the good that God promises to his eternal saving work and final redemption of our souls. Now, if I've confused everybody in the room, let me put it all together and I think it'll make more sense. When we wrap all of that together and ask the question, what is this good that is spoken of in verse 28 that God is working all things together towards? Number one, it is the larger ultimate will and purpose of God. Number two, it is building into us Christ-like character. Number three, it is the saving of many people. And number four, it is in light of eternity and our future glorification. So this good is not some promise of a temporal happiness for this life, but rather it is an encouragement that regardless of what you or I go through in this life, God is in control. And He will ultimately cause all things to work together for an ultimate good and an eternal good. You guys with me? Okay. It didn't sound like you were with me. I'm getting a little scared now. You guys with me? Did that make sense? Because it was a little hard to follow, even for me. But... All right, so what that then means for us looking at verse 28, when it says that God causes all things, and I have the all things underlined in my Bible, when God causes all things to work together for good, that also includes bad things. God can use bad things for a good ultimate purpose. That means God can use the hardship of your life, the illness, persecution, and even death for an ultimate good. That's why Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he says, but if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. He's saying, listen, I'm a missionary traveling around and everywhere I go, there's hardship, right? You look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it gives you a whole long list of all the things that Paul went through. Man, he went through all kinds of hardship. And he says, if I'm traveling around preaching the gospel, I'm going through hardship, but it's coming out in an ultimate good for your salvation. So God can use the difficult areas of our lives for an ultimate good. Let me give you a few examples. A couple from scripture and a couple from life. Um, the classic example from the Old Testament is Joseph, right? We remember the story of Joseph. He was, as a young man, sold by his brothers into slavery. Like, that's gnarly. His own brothers sold him into slavery and ended up a slave in Egypt. So that's bad, right? Beyond that bad, when he gets there, he gets falsely accused and he ends up in prison, right? So that's even more bad. That's bad on top of bad. So he's been betrayed by his own brothers. He's now in prison. But what we know from the story, who is familiar with it, is that God uses it all, doesn't he? And he ultimately elevates Joseph to kind of a prime minister over the whole land of Egypt, only second 
to Pharaoh. Joseph, by the power of God, is able to interpret a dream of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh ends up going like, this guy's got the Spirit of God in him. Who's smarter, wiser, or knows more than, than Joseph? Why don't you be the prime minister of all of Egypt? You'll only be second in command to me. And so God used it then to elevate Joseph. Later on in his life, Joseph is reunited with his brothers, right? You guys know the story. There's a famine in the land. His brothers come to Egypt to try and buy grain, and they end up face-to-face with the very brother that sold them into slavery. And Joseph says to them there in Genesis chapter 45, verse 4, please come close to me. They don't recognize him, and they came close. They still don't know who he is. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. He goes on in verse 7 to say, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore... It was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and a Lord to all of his household and a ruler over the land of Egypt. And he goes on later in chapter 50 to say this. As for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order that I might bring about this present result and preserve many people a lot, right? It was a bad situation, betrayed and sold, misunderstood and imprisoned, but God used it for a larger ultimate good. Another Old Testament example is that of Daniel, very famous story. Everybody knows Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel was one of the exiles that was taken from Jerusalem and taken to Babylon. And Daniel there had a similar story to Joseph in the fact that he had been so faithful to the king of Babylon that he was given an upper uh, leadership position in the government. And then he was so good in that position of leadership that it said the king wanted to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Again, kind of a prime minister only under the king. And that was about to happen when the other officials in the king's court got jealous of Daniel. And they then plotted and devised a plan to do away with Daniel. And they tricked the king to make a law saying that nobody's allowed to worship anybody but the king, right? You can only pray to, you can only worship the king. Daniel said, I can't do that. I know the true and living God. He's a real God. I'm not going to worship some pagan king. And he didn't. And he was arrested, and that's a bad thing. And then he was thrown to lions, and that's even a worse thing, right? See, we, we've kind of over-romanticized that story to, because it's a great children's ministry story to show the faithfulness of God. We do all the cartoons, we color the coloring books, and all of that. But we have to remember, there was a moment when they came to Daniel's house, And they snatched him up out of there and put him in chains and drug him to the edge of a lion's den. And he's standing there looking at man-eating lions and they hucked him in. 
By all accounts, that's a bad thing. But God used it for good. And God protected Daniel. And then God used it to make his name and his glory known among all of the people in Babylon. Look at Daniel chapter 6, verse 25. Once Daniel had been preserved, they come the next morning and Daniel's fine. The, the lions didn't eat him. It says in verse 25, Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples of the nation, all the men of everywhere and every language, who are living in the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all of the domain, of the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and endures forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. So God took a bad thing, a guy being chucked into a bunch of lions, and he went from Babylon being a place that they could only worship a pagan king to a place where they're now worshiping the true and living God, and it's the law. God can do that. We'll bring it into more recent type of scenario. 19... 56 recent. I have this, I meant to bring it this morning, I didn't. I have this devotional. Maybe I'll bring it and show it to you, or I'll put it on the, the bulletin this week. It's a, a one year devotional, and as you go through it, every single day, it highlights something that happened on that day in church history. And most of it's missionaries. And as you go through it, you realize all of the hardship that people went through, whether it was ailments or persecution all of these people, and then God would take that hardship and turn it for good over and over and over again. One of those is a missionary by the name of Jim Elliott. Many of you guys know the story. He was a missionary to indigenous people in the jungles of Ecuador. He was at least trying to be a missionary to them. He and four other missionary men flew in, and they were trying to make contact with this um, unreached people group there in the jungles of Ecuador. And they were ultimately murdered by the tribe of people that they were trying to reach for Jesus. It was carried in Time magazine. It was a big deal, and it's quite a famous story. And on its face value, it was a senseless murder because it left behind five widows their wives were down there in Ecuador with them, all widowed, and an awful lot of their children were now fatherless in one day. And so, on face value, it looked like a senseless murder. But because the missionaries, including Jim Elliott, though they had guns with them, did not use them to defend themselves and only went out in peace, and because of the grace shown to this tribe by the families that continued to reach out to them. And some of their families even went down and lived among these people later on once there was breakthrough to them and ministered to them. Because of that, God used it and many within that tribe got saved. And today it's estimated that over 40% of that tribe is now following Jesus faithfully. And I read an article 
this past week of how one of the actual guys that speared Jim Elliott himself, one of the actual murderers, was now doing missions work in Hyderabad, India. Isn't that like this thing that is like, it looks so bad, but God uses it for a glorious good? We don't ever understand what God's doing behind the scenes, you know? He's working things out for an ultimate good. And this will happen in your personal life. You'll see this happen. It happened with, with my father. My father was diagnosed with cancer on a Tuesday. He died that Sunday night and he accepted Christ hours, hours before he died. Cancer is a horrible thing, but God can still use it for an ultimate good. You guys with me? Man, I've done funerals for people. And in the middle of that funeral, people have gotten legitimately saved and are still walking with Jesus today. And God used the death of a friend of theirs to have them consider eternity and to wake up. And some of those were tragic, tragic deaths, but God used them for an ultimate good. And I know people that attend this church now that came to Christ during some of those funerals that I've done. God used them for an ultimate good. Now, we hate hardship, right? And as much as we hate it, and the suffering, and the sickness, and the persecution, and the death, we have to admit that it is an awful good motivator for people to look to the Lord, isn't it? I mean, for the lost to come to Christ, for for the prodigal, to come back to the Lord, for the faithful to draw closer and to grow deeper in faith. We have to admit that hardship is an awful good motivator, isn't it? I can't think of, and I know that it's happened, and I know there's people that that are out there that would qualify like this, but I can't think of very many people that got saved while everything was going their way. There are some. But I know countless testimonies of people that have turned their life to God during hardship, during financial collapse, during illness, during prison terms, during relational struggles, during marriage strife, during a death of someone close to them. God can use all of those bad things for an ultimate good in our lives and in the lives of other people. And that's why both Paul and James would write that they rejoice in hardship because they knew that even though there was hardship, God was going to use it for a greater good. Paul would write in Romans 5, we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance, perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. James would write, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith will will produce endurance. And then let that endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. Paul would write to Timothy, and he said, Because I preach this good news, I am suffering and I am in chains like a criminal, but the word of God cannot be chained. 
Now listen to what Paul says. So I'm willing to endure anything if it will bring salvation and eternal glory in Christ Jesus to those that God has chosen. He's like, I'll take all the suffering in the world. I'll endure anything you want to throw at me if it means for others salvation. God can use that hardship. And so, a couple of thoughts for application while we wrap this up. Number one is this. We are to live by faith, trusting in the goodness of God. Even when we don't see and understand how that situation is going to turn out for good, we know that God's plan is bigger than ours and His ability is far beyond ours. And here's what we got to do. We have to keep looking for where God is using all things for good. You see, usually when we encounter hardship and we start to pray, what do we do? Our prayers get really narrow, don't they? Remove me from this. Take away the pain. Deliver me from this situation. We only want out. We're usually praying and praying and praying for the hardship to be removed. And when it persists, what do we do? Then we start praying and praying, why God? Why me? When sometimes what we ought to be praying is, God, how are you using this? Show me where you're working. If you use all things and you make them all come together for good, show me where you're working. Are you trying to teach me something and grow my faith? Or are you using this in the life of somebody else? Where are you working? Because I know you cause all things to work together for for good for those who love you and I love you. The second thing there under that heading of faith is this. We need to step out in faith. Because when it says that God causes all things to work together for good, while that does include the bad stuff, it also includes the good stuff. It includes the times where we jump into ministry and we step out in faith, and God will use that faithfulness when we step out in ministry. In fact, if you look at verse 28, it says that this promise is for those who love God and that are what? Called according to to his purpose. That means there's a calling on your life that God wants to use for his good if we'll only walk in it. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So that's the first thing by way of application. The second thought for application is is don't be an Eeyore. You guys know what Eeyore is? It's that guy. The extremely pessimistic donkey from Winnie the Pooh, right? He's only ever negative. He's always gloomy, right? There's a line where I think it's Rabbit or Piglet or one of those guys come up to Eeyore and they greet him by saying, Good day, Eeyore. And Eeyore's response is, If it is a good day, which I doubt. Right? Always assuming the worst. Dwelling on the negative. 
always fatalistic, always believing that everything's just fatalistic, everything's bad. And I know a few Eeyores, and I have my Eeyore moments too. We probably all do. But whether we realize it or not, when we're an Eeyore, it's often a selfish thing to get sympathy from others. We're often quick to tell people about all of our hardship so that they will feel sorry for us. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't share your struggles with a brother or a sister because they're going to pray for you. They're going to encourage you. That's okay. But I'm talking about Eeyore. Always negative, always down, always fatalistic, always drama. You know anybody that's always drama? Usually, somebody that is always drama is always about getting attention. But can I say to you for the Christian, it is both dangerous and it is wrong. And the reason is, when we convince people to feel sorry for us, when we paint a situation as hopeless, we're getting people to question and to think less of the goodness of God, the provision of God, the promises of God, and the overall plan of God. You see, Eeyores are casting God as being unfaithful. And what I do when I'm always an Eeyore and I'm joining people and inviting people to come into my despair is I'm showing them that I don't actually believe verse 28 and I'm encouraging them not to believe it too. When I'm always, always, always bringing people in on my despair, I'm showing them that I don't believe that God is working all things together for good and I'm encouraging them not to believe it too. And that's misrepresenting God and His faithfulness. And we have to care more about representing God rightly than we do about getting sympathy from people. And so when we approach life, whether it's good or whether it's bad, we approach it saying, I don't always know what's going on. I don't always understand what God is doing. There's even times when I don't like what God is doing. But verse 28 doesn't promise that God is doing all things for my ease or my comfort or my safety or my convenience. I don't always like what's going on. I don't always understand it. But I know that God is good. And I know that He is working towards my ultimate good. Because He did not spare even His Son, but gave Him up for us all. Won't he then also do what is ultimately best for every one of us? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for that truth and the character that is behind it. We thank you for the fact that when our world is upside down, it doesn't phase you. That you're still working. And out of love for us, in your immense heart for us, you're working all things together for good. And so I pray, Lord, over this room, for those right now that are going through hardship and they're not exactly sure how this could possibly work out for good, I pray that you would instill in their heart the faith to believe it. To know that you are good. 
Anytime they doubt it, they would find themselves at the foot of the cross looking up where we can only say that you are good. And I pray for every one of us that we would step out in faith, knowing that whatever we do in your name, you will use it for good. That we are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that you prepared beforehand that we might work in, that we might walk in them. Lord, we pray that you'd instill that in our heart. And we thank you that you are ultimately in control and that you can take anything that is bad or negative and you can make a good out of it because you are a good God. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.